Good morning, church. If you're a guest with us, welcome. I'm Pastor John Feek. We are entering into a brand new series. Are you ready for something new? Say, I'm ready. You want to open your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, right after the Gospels. If you flip towards the back of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then we have Acts. We have the founding of the church. It was a, a mystery of old. It's now being clarified starting in Acts and all throughout the rest of the New Testament, we get a little bit of a sneak peek into how it started, and we want to be able to go back to our roots and ask the question, uh, what was the church founded upon? What are uh, the foundations, the platform that we are now, 2,000 years later, still moving down the road because we are the church? So I hope this series is going to be uh, a series that is going to speak right into where you are at personally, where you're at maybe as a couple or as families, and just asking if if I am a believer, is it enough just for me to do my Jesus and me solo deal? Is that is that enough? And I'll give you a, I'll give you a hint. Ah, uh, no, no, it's not actually, because at the moment that you were saved, if you're a Christian, you were born again, and it's not just a private personal thing. Uh, your first step of obedience is to go public in baptism and then to be identified as part of a local gathering, a local assembly, the church. And so Acts 2 starts us off thinking about the very first moments. The Holy Spirit came just like Jesus promised. Jesus left after his crucifixion and resurrection. He spent time letting his disciples know and other eyewitnesses that he has to leave because there's going to be another that's going to come that is going to be able to empower this thing called the church to do greater things than even he did while he was on the earth. And how is that possible? Obviously, God put all of his stock in one place. We talk about, uh, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Well, guess what? God put all of his eggs in this basket. He said, everything I am going to do is going to be done through the church. The church is what Jesus died for. He didn't just die for individuals. It says that Jesus laid down his life for his bride, the church. Jesus loves the church. And so my assumption is that some of us, even this morning, we actually despise the church. We hate the church. We're bitter against the church. We've been hurt by the church. We nitpick all that is wrong with the church. And the problem is, you're not the judge. Jesus is the judge of his church. He'll take care of his church. Our job is to know what our role, what our part is within the church and to be a healthy member so that we can experience health within the church. Do you believe that it matters where you're at personally and that it affects the whole? Well, today, as we look at Acts, we're going to start off with this word, devoted. Somebody say devoted. Devoted, devoted. We're going to do a deep dive into if we are the church, if we're the church, somebody say we are the church. We are the church. If you are a follower of Jesus, we together, collectively, we are the church. And one of the aspects of being the church is we are devoted. We are devoted, and we are devoted to so many different things, whether it's we're devoted to our kids and grandkids, we're devoted to our spouses, we're devoted to our job and our work, and we're devoted to sports and hobbies, we're devoted to our cars and our toys, we're devoted to our future investments, we're devoted to our savings and our retirement. We are so devoted when it comes to planning and executing everything from vacations to birthday parties. We are so devoted, and I wonder if today we would just step back and ask, is there any level of that passion and devotion that shows up with the church? Because all else is going to fade away. The church is going to continue on in eternity, in heaven forever. 
If you're part of the church, you're part of something that cannot fail and will last. Everything else, it's going to rust. It's going to crumble. It's going to fade. Where are you putting your devotion and your passion? We're going to be looking at Acts 2 and then jumping a little bit to Acts 4. Can everybody handle that? I know, I know it's a lot of jumping. You might have to flip a page. You might have to swipe, all right? But I believe in you. I believe in you. I remember the first time reading Acts 2 as a brand new believer. And you know what my experience was? Maybe it was similar to yours. I opened my Bible and I read Acts 2 and then I looked at the church. And then I read Acts 2 and I looked at the church and I'm, did I miss something? Did they miss something? Why is it that what I read in the Bible looks nothing like what's happening when we gather together? Why is it that there is zero resemblance of what's happening in the development of the church to how we practically live? And guess what? I was one of those passionate, zealous, radically rescued, knew that I was still smelling a little bit like hell and stepping into the church with an attitude of judgment and criticism because I thought, man, I, I'm seeing what's here and I know what should be. And the problem is all of those people until I realized I was going to be either part of the problem also or part of the solution. And thank God for patient pastors and in particular, several that put their arm around me and said, John, you're part of the problem. So maybe this would be a good season to shut your face. He didn't say it like that. He said it much more sanctified. And start doing the work of being helpful instead of harming the church. If you see it lacking, strengthen it. If you see that it's weak, provide for it. If you see that there's gaps in ministry, where are you at, John? Where are you at? So stop criticizing the bride of Christ. If you've got a problem with Jesus' bride, you've got a problem with Jesus. And guess what? It, it took me a little bit longer than just a few of those conversations to finally get over it and move forward. It took me some serious humility to ask the question of myself, not others, some of these questions. So let's start with Acts 2. I'm not assuming that, that you know what I'm referring to. So... We're reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. If you have your outline, if you have your Bible open, don't take my word for it. Let's read it together. Acts 2, 42 through 47. We read it earlier. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Verse 44, all the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property. They sold possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They, they broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and authentic, sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. And I remember reading that and reading that and thinking, why can't that be the reality? Why is it that there is such a discrepancy between what we see here and what is lived out? And uh, I wonder if, if you're familiar with the, the MRV, little different translation, the, the modern reality version. Okay, I'm making this up. All right, all right, all right. Because the modern reality version might say they were devoted to their comfort their own personal happiness, and their own personal goals, dreams, and bucket lists. Nobody really noticed that the Christians were even there. 
because all they did was focus on themselves. Very few of the believers were ever together. And when they were, they just fought about really stupid things. If they sold anything, they just used that money to buy something better for themselves. They claimed to love God, but they didn't even love each other. So they felt empty, alone, depressed, and anxious. And as a result, most people disliked them. And very few lives were changed. God did not add very many to their numbers since no one was being saved. I don't know about you, but I'm spending less and less time criticizing things that aren't there and I'm weeping over things that God will bring. I'm spending less time criticizing other people for what they're doing and not doing and I'm spending more time confessing my own sin of how I'm failing. I don't know about you, but I kind of think that's the way that it should have always been. And I don't know where you're at this morning, but I I want a little bit of taste of what was going on with the fresh pouring out of the Spirit and that God is still in the business of bringing revival and transforming lives and that God is something better than what I just read. Do you believe that? God, God is something a little bit better than the narrative that could describe the American church. Different results demand different mindsets. So here's what we're looking at. Three mindset shifts. Three shifts that are going to happen in order for us to experience this in our personal lives as a church from Acts 2 and 4. So here we go. If you're ready, say ready. If we are the church and we are the church, somebody say we are the church. If we are the church and because of who Jesus is, here's, here's number one. If you're taking notes, we are intensely devoted intensely devoted you see verse 42 they devoted they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching fellowship breaking of bread prayer one of the most important words in all of the new testament is this word that we see here proskartario say what proskartario is a beautiful word in greek meaning devoted devoted it shows up again and again that there was a uniqueness about when god showed up people responded with devotion vertically and then devotion horizontally. There was devotion. There was pros, car, tereo. What, what in the world are we talking about here? This reality of being lived out in a constant state of relentless pursuit, persistent, ongoing, obstinate devotion. It's in the imperfect tense, which means it doesn't just start and stop. It starts and the expectation is that keeps on going. It doesn't stop. It keeps energizer bunny devotion right can't stop him he keeps on going this is that kind of devotion because we are the church lift up your voice and say we are the church we're the church we're the church and one of the greatest marks is this devotion devotion devoted devoted you are pros car tereo with so many things are you this way with the church the first christians were devoted they weren't casual it wasn't just a cultural thing. It wasn't because of, well, mama said and uh, grandpa's making us and I'm going to get the guilt trip. Instead, it was full on, all in, sold out, on fire. Somebody say that's intense. Yeah, that, that's intense. That's intense. We're not just talking about a, an entry level devotion. We're talking about intense devotion where they knew that they were probably going to die for this. 
How devoted do you have to be some to something or someone? How devoted do you have to be in order to know from the beginning? I may die soon because I'm saying yes to this. This is going to be the end of my life because I am committed to this. I am devoted. Well, how do I know I'm devoted? How would I know that I'm devoted? Not just devoted to some things, but the main thing, the primary thing, the greatest thing. How do I know I'm devoted to the church? Well, it's right there. Do you see it in verse 42? Straight from the text. Here are four ways. I think you got it in your notes. How do I know I'm devoted? Well, the expression of their devotion was this. Apostles' teaching. They're devoted to studying the truth. They study the truth. Do you study truth? Because everyone, I think, would acknowledge from birth, we are passive or actively studying the world and we are being trained up and mentored. We're being discipled with a whole lot of lies and a whole lot of foolishness. It takes something of intentionality and purpose to be able to study truth. I don't know where you're at with your truth investigation. I would assume that for some of us, we're still skeptical. We're like, I, I don't know. Like, I've kind of been around church a little bit. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm kind of shopping around, seeing what's up. If you study truth, you are going to find yourself being devoted to Jesus, the truth, more and more. The early church, they devoted themselves as the apostles taught. The apostles were teaching Old Testament. They were teaching fresh revelation at the time. Now we have 66 books, right? We have 39 old, 27 new. We have all that we need. God has spoken and it is closed. There is no more fresh revelation. There is fresh illustration and eyes opening of illumination to be able to see what God has said. Are you a student of the word? Because if you are not a student of the word, you're studying something. You're studying someone. Uh, this past week, I had yet another person tell me, which this is, this is becoming so, so very common. I asked them, so how are you doing in, in the word? Because we got a plan going, there's accountability. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I, I got into the word a little bit. But man, I got online and I started reading all these articles about whether I was an introvert or an extrovert and explained so much about my marriage and I'm, I'm just trying to fix my marriage and figure it out. And man, all of these psychology articles are just so helpful and so enlightening. And I just went, ah, just on the phone, right? I don't do it, just do it for you, right? I do it all over the country, over the phone and on Zoom. Like, wrong answer. You're going to study the lies of the world and you're going to try to figure out answers for your everyday life when God has already spoken. Do you study truth? Do you study the truth? Are you a student of the word? How about this? Christ-centered friendships. Where are we getting that from? Not only were they devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted. Devoted. Somebody say devoted. They're devoted to fellowship. Devoted to fellowship. We're talking about Christ-centered friendships. My assumption with anybody that I interact with these days is I assume that fewer and fewer people even have one rock-solid, mature, godly friend. Even those that are in the church year after year, I ask the question, who do you have that is speaking the truth, holding you accountable, helping, walking with you? Who do you fellowship with? And typically the answer is, well, what do you mean? Like, I, I, I have punch and cookies, right, after church. I, I have breakfast with some people. I'm, I'm around the table, and we're, we're chatting a little bit. I have fellowship all the time. Oh, we went out for lunch. Oh, we had dinner with that couple, and we had a time of fellowship. Apparently, God's definition of fellowship and our definition might be a little bit different. Just because you're a Christian 
and somebody else is a Christian, just because you're in the same room and you're having discussions doesn't mean fellowship is happening. Fellowship is having things in common, the one thing in common, Christ at the center. If you are spending time with people on the phone, texting, having mealtime, even here in the fellowship hall, it's called the fellowship hall. How many times does fellowship actually happen? Here's a big question. There's a possibility that this morning, no fellowship actually happened in the fellowship hall. We can open the word, we can listen to some stuff, we can share some stories, and there is not Christ in the middle where we are talking about him and we're sharing in his life and we're being changed and we're helping each other grow and mature. You could do that for years, showing up in church and never have a Christ-centered friendship that is taking you further, that is taking you deeper. We have a lot of friends that we gossip and slander with. Those are not godly Christ-centered friends. If you have a friend, we're talking to our students, right? Teenagers, who do you need to cut out of your life? Who is a bad influence? And all the adults in the room said, amen. Hey, adults, who's leading you astray that's even sitting in your row with you after church that you're gossiping and attacking and slandering? Who's leading you astray that is a fellow Christian? Cut them out of your life. It's good for the kids, right? It's for the children. The children need those bad influences out. Oh, I do. You do. And there are self-proclaimed Christians that are doing nothing but feeding your flesh and fueling the flames of your bitterness. And you can sit for hours and hours doing zero fellowship, no Christ, all flesh, and you're going downhill together. And I just want to say, how's that going for you? Is that, is that helpful? Is the gossip ring helping you to follow Jesus? Well, they're Christian friends, right? Not if they're taking you there. Not if fellowship is not happening. How about holy feasting? I just made that up. I kind of like it. Way to go, all right? When we're talking about feasting, we're talking about two things here. What, what's there? Just straight from the text, all right? Not even making this stuff up. The breaking of bread is an image that is utilized in the New Testament for, for what? Anybody know? For communion, for the Lord's Supper, and also there's consistency over and over again that they gathered together for meals. They shared meals together. Odds are in the early church, did you know this? Do you know this? Most likely from what we see, there is a pattern of every week they would just share lunch and have communion at lunch. They wouldn't have communion as part of the service. They would just be like, we're just going to eat and we're going to break bread. We're going to have communion as we share a meal because they were so united. They were so together that between like eating a hamburger and going to the elements was just like, this is just what we do. It's all just part of life, right? We're doing all of life together and it's holy. It's set apart. It's unique when Christians gather together and share meals. It's unique when we're able to have communion, have the Lord's Supper and remember why we're gathered the magnet that actually draws us together in unity it's christ it's his death and resurrection and we remember this as we feast and lastly what does he say there's devotion they devoted themselves together the apostles teaching fellowship breaking of bread and and what's last somebody help me out we got we have prayer here we have a devotion to prayer do you believe that devotion to prayer is different than i tossed one up to the big guy in the sky do you pray? Oh, yeah, I'm just cruising down the road. I'm just tossing up some prayers. Yeah, that's not this. 
we're talking about devoted, we're saying, I'm waking up and I'm like, I got to get on my knees. And before I go to work and before I have that conversation and, and as I'm going throughout my day, God, I can't do this. I need your help. I need your strength. I need your wisdom. God, I'm just so prone to wander and go back to the old and God, protect me, guard me. There's temptation again. Prayer as a lifestyle devotion. This is unceasing prayer that we're called to without stopping unceasing prayer. They were devoted to these things. The study of truth, Christ-centered friendships, holy feasting, unceasing prayer. We are the church, and because of who Jesus is, there is this intense, somebody say intense one more time. There's an intense devotion that like those that are closest to you should be like, aren't you taking this whole Jesus thing a little too far? If you're getting some of that feedback, you're getting warmer. Like intensity of the, all the accusations that I get about Aren't you taking this whole Green Bay Packers thing just a little, little too far? Like, how, how come Green Bay Packers are showing up on your feet, on your hat? I'm sure they're on your underwear. What is going on that when I go to your house that I have to step on a doormat with a Green Bay Packer helmet? Like, aren't you, well, are, are you a fanatic? And, and I hope people would be able to talk to any of us and go, you're, you're a little fanatical about this Jesus thing, about this church thing. You're taking this church thing a little too far. It's a little too much. Like, it seems like you're all in, fully committed, intensely devoted. And inside you should be saying, yeah, that's why he died for me. So that this would result. He laid down his life that I would be intensely devoted to his bride. I'm all in. Nothing's going to get in the way. I'm not looking for reasons to run. I'm looking for every reason to jump in and get dirty and messy as I'm devoted, as I'm committed. Number two, if you're taking notes, we are irrationally generous. If we're the church and we are the church, we are intensely devoted, but we're irrationally generous. Why are we so generous? Well, if you open up to, to Acts 4, oh, I believe in you. Can you handle it? Can you flip all the way from chapter 2 to 4? Okay, I'll wait. I'll wait. I got time. I got time. We can do this all afternoon, right? Acts 4, and we're going to look at this, verses 33 and 34. I just want to jump ahead because it brings some clarity about this devotion. How did this devotion get expressed well let's start in verse 32 can you handle that verse 32 now the full number of those who believed they believed so who's part of the church those who believe those who believe a visitor that is kind of dabbling in buddhism and hinduism and mormonism and saying i'll i'll stick my big toe in with the christian church too that, no that's not belief we're talking about believers all in with jesus alone we're of one heart. You love that? They're of one heart and one soul. No one said that of the things that belonged to him was his own. <laughs> how, how much oneness can you have here that they would say, all my stuff doesn't even belong to me? They had everything in common. Everything in common. Do you know what word that is? That's one word in Greek. Koinonia. Fellowship is everything in common. My stuff? It's not mine. It's yours. Anything that I have, it's yours. I, I, know, I know for some, some of us are getting a little nervous. Is it, you smell that? Does it smell, does it smell of communism? What, what, what is that scent? What is that odor that rises up from scriptures? It, it's something radically different than hyper-independent capitalism, right? There is something about working your tail off and knowing that everything that I worked for, it's not mine, it's God's. 
and God has control over my pocketbook. God has control over my bank account. God has control over all the knickknacks on the shelf that, that if anything needs to go, I'm willing to say it's for the kingdom. It's for the church. Anything, anything, okay? How awesome is it that they, they had this unity of heart and soul? Verse 33, and with great power, uh-oh, somebody say great power. Oh, great power. Oh, with that comes what? Great responsibility. It's true, it's true. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Man, bold, right? Like speaking up, we can't help but testify, and great grace was upon them all. How did they get this abundant grace? They were willing to speak up, irrationally generous, and God's pouring out grace. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, not a single needy person among them for as many as were owners of land or houses they sold them they brought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid it there at the apostles feet how crazy is this that the very first snapshots that we get of the early church when they said we are the church do you believe that maybe they understood something that we don't based by their their actions based on their response to the gospel. There was something that didn't need to be taught for years and years and decades and decades. How old was the church? It was brand spanking new. It was still in diapers. Wah, wah. They brand new. The church just came. And what were they doing? They didn't have to be lectured. They didn't have to be guilted. They didn't have to be criticized. They didn't have to have all kinds of talks behind the scene about, you know, you should be a little bit more generous, you know. When the Holy Spirit fell upon them and grace was poured out, there was something that was happening that probably even surprised each one of them. When great power comes, generosity overflows. And I wonder, what is the level of generosity in your life? How difficult is it in our day? I don't need the church. I got the government, yo. I can just sign up, click, 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 paycheck. Jesus, thanks, but no thanks. Government's got it. I'm voting for Biden again. Government, be my savior, be my rescuer. Do you know what the early church knew? The early church knew something so incredible. They knew this. We are family now. There are no more orphans in this family. We're all adopted in. And this adopted family is now a family that shows generosity that seems irrational. Do you understand that? That the culture should look and go, you're not thinking very wisely about that, are you? You're, you're, you're kind of a fool for taking it that far and that extreme. You gave how much? You spent how much time? You gave what you had? You don't have a lot. But you kept giving. You didn't calculate every day. We can't, we can't, we can't. I don't know what conversations sound like in your home, but I wonder if we had a radical revival in our marriages and in our homes, do you know what would happen? Families would be coming together and they would be saying, we can, we can and we will. We can and we will. We can and we will. And we're not going to be foolish, but it's going to look a little irrational to go that far, to stick our necks out because the needs are so great around us. It's irrational, but this generosity is super 
natural. This is awesome. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, there was no needy person. No more stealing, no more shortcuts, no more lying and deceiving and covering up. This new thing called the church, they said, we're trusting God and we're going to do this thing together. This is so awesome. This is what the church does. And do you believe that you can't outgive God? God, if I give you a little bit, I don't know if I can trust you. I can trust you with this. Maybe I'll step out. I'll put my pinky toe in the pool of generosity and, and maybe see what happens. You think God honors that? Because it starts with a heart that has been radically transformed. And, it, and I'm going to say, I'm going to say something that might hurt your feelings. If you have lived for years and years hoarding and guarding and protecting, and you've lived for so long doubting and questioning and holding back, you at least have to ask, am I a Christian? Because if I'm placing my trust in a Savior that gave it all, but I've never represented Him, I don't look like Him or sound like Him, then maybe I think it's time to say I'm not actually with Him. I'm not one of His. There's nothing in my life that anybody would point to that would say you're devoted. There's nothing in my life that they would say you're generous. And so we're down with religion and we're, we're up with actual relationship that leads to revival of heart and of lifestyle together because we're the church. This is what Jesus calls us to do. Somebody say, we're the church. We're the church. We believe it. We believe that it's more blessed to give than to receive. We see that later in Acts 20, 35. It's more blessed to give. Always better to give. There's exceeding gladness when we give. There is absolute bitterness and resentment and scorekeeping when we hoard and we hide, when we pull back. And God is saying, church, if you're going to be the church, if you're going to represent me, Jesus says, it starts here. Devotion to the things that he prioritizes. Generosity in ways that the world does not understand and thinks is irrational. And here we go. If you're taking notes, jot this down. If we're the church and we are the church and because of who Jesus is, because of who he is, not who you are, not your circumstances, but because of who Jesus is, we are unapologetically bold. Unapologetically bold. How dare we as God's people that it would come out of our mouth? Well, you can't say that. You can't say that. You, you can't talk that way to people. You might upset them. The early church seemingly did not have a problem with hurting feelings and offending. And they did it in love. They spoke the truth. They did it graciously, but they were opening their mouths. And as a result, what do we see in verse 47? If we're unapologetically bold, here's the result. The Lord added to their number daily. Somebody say daily. Cada dia, cada dia. Those who are being saved. They're being saved, they're being added. They're being saved, they're being added. The Lord was adding to the church. It was a transfer of membership. Everybody got it? It was a transfer of membership from I'm on team Satan. I'm doing what I want to do and I'm living in selfishness and all of a sudden radical transformation happens because there's this new group of people that are living wildly different than everybody else and pretty soon, do you know what's happening to team Jesus? Every day, more and more people are smelling like hell. They're coming out and they're joining team Jesus. They're trading jerseys pretty soon, not as is it hell is coming up into everybody's life pretty soon heaven's coming down because God's people are out 
boldly proclaiming. They're speaking up. They're not afraid to say it. They may be anxious inside. They may be timid by nature, but what happens is they say it anyway. They speak into it anyway. They're asking the question, where are you? Because we know, we saw the resurrection. Where are you at with the resurrection? Where are you at with a man who says that he was God and he rose from the dead and he said that he was God, he's going to return again and he's going to judge the living and the dead. Are you ready? What team are you on? They weren't afraid. They weren't afraid to say that all the way to death unapologetically bold. Why? Because, and here, here's part of devotion. The reason we're so devoted is because we know this. What happens at salvation is that you are taken out of the world, you are taken from self-rule, and you are added to the body. That you used to be part of the old, you're now part of something brand new. And one term that we see in Scripture is baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is it talking about? And we're not going to go off on any tangents here. It's real simple. The clarity that we see from 1 Corinthians 12 is that we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. When did that happen? At the point of salvation. Everybody that's saved is baptized into one body. Well, I, I just got right with Jesus. I'm not a big fan of organized religion in the church. No, you were baptized into a body, into a family. You're now one of the members of this body. And here is what we need to understand. All are given one spirit, and therefore the result of this radical transformation from old to new, from team Satan to team Savior, is this. That there is unity because there is one spirit that is bringing us into one body. Are you experiencing that? I feel closer. I feel more united because I'm choosing to unite myself with what the Spirit says and how the Spirit is leading. Is that your experience? Because if you are divided or dividing, the reality is that's not the Holy Spirit that is leading you. That's a different spirit altogether. That's the old spirit the one that kept you blind and hard. So if you are added to the body, I love it. You're adopted. You're now a family member. Not until you become a family member can you be devoted to the family. Do you believe that? Never never before have we had so many options and opportunities. I, I talk to people all the time about how did you find out that church and how did you get connected there? And they're like, well, I went on the website and saw that if if it really vibed with me, yo, I was just, am, am I vibing with that? And then I just go and I hang out with these people and like, man, do I just gel with them? You know what I mean? We just got this like connection. And I'm saying, yeah, his name is the Holy Spirit. Not they look like me. They talk like me. They're in the same socioeconomical bracket as me. Uh, they, they never tell me anything hard and they're always affirming every choice I make. If that's what you mean by trying to find the right family and the right church home, then you ain't got the right list, yo. You ain't got the right list. It's, it's the Holy Spirit at work here. Am I part of this family? So it doesn't matter what we look like or what our backgrounds are, what our pasts are. We are united by the Spirit. That's where devotion can start. The lost will not be found unless the church is devoted to this, to good news. Down with our thing, up with his thing. The thing that unites us is we all believe in the gospel. If the gospel goes... There is no unity. If the gospel is out, if Jesus is not the only way, enter social club, 
and we're kicking out Jesus out of his church and we're no longer the church. So we want to be pretty fired up about the main thing and keeping the main thing the main thing. So can I ask you, when is the last time that you were so frustrated or upset about any situation that happened in church because it was a gospel issue? When is the last time that you had to talk to somebody else about how you felt and that you were pent up with anger, frustration because, because the gospel was being compromised? Because the main thing that we're straying away from, could I go ahead and assume that in 110 years, I don't know if anybody in our church history has ever gotten upset about us straying from the gospel, but everything else becomes of greater importance than the main thing And God says, I'm going to add daily those that are being saved. And those that are being saved, they're being saved because of the gospel. Not because of anything else. Not because of anything else. Good news made it that way because our mission is what? As a church, our mission, two words. Help me out, help me out. To make disciples, all right? All right, if you needed a cheat, there was your cheat, okay? The mission, the main thing is to make disciples. There are no disciples made unless there is the gospel being proclaimed. Unless they hear, they cannot be saved. And we need to not just know it. We need to spread it. That God's power, that God's grace would be poured out because he is backing his thing 100%. You believe it? That when we get on God's page, when we're fired up about what God is fired up about, man, grace is coming. Grace is coming for that. Here's the bad news. If you're really fired up about your thing, God's, God's not fired up about you. And, he, and he's not backing your play. So if you're playing from any other playbook, other than the Bible, we're in trouble. They were added daily. And I wonder, let's get real personal, who is right in front of you? Who is in your life that God is saying, speak up, spread the gospel, and we remain silent? God is saying, you have the good news. Why are you hoarding it? Why are you nervous about the gospel radically transforming lives? Have we made it about us? Have we made it about our our feelings? About our insecurities? Our sense of rejection from others? That we would not be bold? Where there is boldness, there is confirmation that God is building his church and that we are real. Who is it that's right in front of you? One church put it this way. (laughs) Passion for evangelism. They said this, we will do anything short of sin to reach people who don't know Christ. If we're just reading Acts, we're going to do whatever it takes. We're going to go to whatever extremes to be able to win people to Christ. And I I was thinking to myself, how do you reach people that are unreached? Sarah and I have been missionaries in the past. I don't know if that, that missionary passion necessarily was left in the South Caribbean believe wherever we go in 2023 is a mission field you believe that and if we're on mission here's here's the reality and i hope we hear this to reach people no one is reaching we'll do things that nobody is doing that's not the way we do it that's not the way we've done it and here's the reality the early church was harassed every day for get in line You're supposed to be Jewish. Just go back to the temple. Just get yourself put back under the law. 
Don't you know your role? Don't you know where you're supposed to be? We don't do it that way. They thought it was a cult that was rising up from some uh, pasture land Nazarene wandering around with, with no army, no protection. And they're going, what is this cult that's rising up? Don't they know they're doing it wrong? Don't they know that this whole church thing, like they're breaking all the rules. And as we watch the life of Jesus, what are we seeing? He's doing things that nobody ever did because he's reaching people that Judaism was not reaching. They were unwilling to go to the places. And I wonder, are we more comfortable? And I'm not even talking about what we're doing as a church as a whole. I'm just saying for you individually, are you willing to do things that you've never done before that make you so uncomfortable to step out even to see one person, to see one person radically saved. In the 21 years, my first 21 years of life, I don't remember a single person that was willing to enter into the mess that was my life to tell me about Christ. I don't remember a single person sharing the gospel with me. And I, and I just, I look back and I'm, it, it's not because I wasn't around Christians. Thinking real hard, I can identify a handful of Christians. And where were they? Far off in the seclusion of safety. They weren't willing to meet me where I was at. And when, when I was saved, God did something in my heart. Of, I'm willing to go wherever and do whatever it takes. And I don't know, I don't know about you, but... I've grown accustomed to just being in really awkward places and being in really uncomfortable environments, hanging out with people that are so different than me, it's unbelievable. And the more that I just keep showing up to those places, the more I watch gospel conversations happen. And the more and more times, this past week, I've, I've been able to talk to four different people, share my testimony, share the gospel, different contexts, different ages, just in one week, four opportunities. Guess what? It's not like I had to go out of my way looking really hard. It's just right in front of me. They're right there. Talk. Open your mouth. But we're so concerned about things that don't matter that the thing that matters of utmost importance, we're blind. We're hard. We're preoccupied. We're busy. We're distracted. You'd be shocked how many people have said, why hasn't anybody ever told me this before? I've been around church and I've never heard this before. And I can guarantee you that I'm not sharing anything wacky off the wall. It's simple clarity that you are a sinner. You need a savior. You're not a good person. You are a rebel from birth. And if this is the end of your story, hell is going to be your eternity. And hell is hot. Forever is long. And I love you. And I want us to be together forever. And here's where I was at. And here's how hard. And it doesn't matter where you start. It matters that you say yes and that you have a church. You have a family that can now be brothers and sisters. You're not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. How awesome is it that God's like, what about them? What about her? What about him? And we've gotten in the habit of avoiding and ignoring the need in front of us. We make it a habit. We just habitually obsess about our thing and our weight and our busyness, and our responsibilities, and all that we have on our plate, and we have people right in front of us that are lost, and we say nothing at all. 
Is Jesus going to honor our lack of urgency and devotion? You have to answer that for yourself. Is God's hand on me? Is there grace being poured out because I'm doing the work? Because I'm willing to say yes. So all the questions that we may have about risk-taking and what it's going to cost. What is it going to cost our church? What is it going to cost me individually? And I would just say, you may not be a risk-taker by nature, but God is making his followers and making his church to be a risk-taking church supernaturally. Because Christianity has always been the riskiest of any type of quote-unquote religion that is willing to go anywhere, do anything, and we're invited to be part of this thing called the church. So where does the shift need to take place? I don't know where it needs to take place for you, but here's five, okay? Can you handle five? I, I know it. If we, if we go beyond that, you got to bust out a second hand, and I just want to make it easy. One hand, one hand, one hand. All right, here we go. If there's going to be a devotion rising up in your heart, here is where maybe five shifts need to take place. Devotion shift starts here. Read God's word. That's pretty radical, right? Can we be honest? Without judgment, the majority of us have never read the Bible seven days in a row in our entire lives. Can we just be honest? The vast majority of us have never made it a week reading the Bible every day. Okay? And those that are, they're, they're not quick to raise their hand and to, to brag about it because they know the more they're in it, the humbler they get and the more that God's changing them and burdening them to read it more. But I would say this, be careful because God's word is alive. It's sharp. It's active. You've got to be careful because if you're handling the sword, you're going to get cut. And the beauty is the more that God slices into those areas of your life that need to change, the more that you want him to change you, even though it's so different and so uncomfortable. You want more. You want more. Read God's word. Say that with me. Read God's word. There we go. How about this? Number two, serve in ministry. But you've got to be careful because selfless service is it's addictive. It's a problem. Once you realize that you're not your own, you've been bought with a price and that the selfish life that you used to live has got to go and you step out and you just start living for people and you start putting people ahead of yourself and you think people are more important than you and you're willing to sacrifice and give of your time and you're ready to serve in the church and you're ready to serve in your family. And for many of us, we, we complain about our schedules and the reality is there is plenty of opportunity to serve everywhere. The issue is, are you a servant? Because the test of being a servant is how do you respond when you're treated like one? Are you a servant? Because if you're following the servant king, you know what happens to your heart? You become like him. When you start reading and seeing and your sanctified imagination starts exploding with the true Jesus, I don't know if you've been in the Gospels, you've got to get your keister back into the Gospels. Let's do this, okay? As you read the Gospels, you start realizing the king left heaven and he served and he served and he served. And then we read what in Matthew 11 that uh, he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The king of heaven came to serve me? What's your response? Give me some more. Give me some more. Ah! Jesus, if I'm with you, I serve. Be great. Serve. Where's your ministry? And, and I don't want any personal offenses or attacks, but if you've been here for weeks and weeks and you're not serving consistently in a ministry, what's going on? 
is newness of life entering your heart because it can't be contained. You will serve. You will be compelled. But you got to be careful because the more you serve selflessly, the more you realize the joy when you find out it's not about me. It's never been about me. It's all about my king. It's all, all about the needs around me that my king wants to meet through me. He wants to use me. Who am I that he would use me? And the more I do it, the more I realize this is where happiness comes from. This is where true joy, not me pursuing my thing, but me giving up my thing and serving others, no matter what it takes. And I love that we are a church full of people that are not specialists and professionals. We have so many people that I know that are in public ministry that are scrubbing toilets and on their hands and knees up to their armpits and all kinds of nasty stuff, cleaning and serving and telling nobody because they know Jesus. Do you? Because if you know the servant, you serve. You don't need somebody to pressure you. Sign up, sign up, sign up. Hey, hey, oh, students, we got ministry. We have needs. Are you willing to sign up? I don't know. Uh, I, I'm, once a month is a lot. Got to check my schedule. And my life is hidden in Christ. I no longer am following my own urges, my own desires. He served me and he continues to serve me. How can I not just give and give and give in his power? Serve in a ministry. Serve in a ministry. Read God's word. Serve in a ministry. Everybody say serve in ministry. Oh, it's awesome. How about this? Number three, join a group. Join a group. But you got to be careful because then you might experience belonging in community. And be careful because you might start trusting people and you don't trust people. You don't trust anybody. You just trust yourself until you meet Jesus. And then you have a community and you have brothers and sisters that you start trusting. And you trust them enough to speak into your life and sometimes uncomfortable things. And they speak the truth in love. And the more that you start obeying the word in community, the more you start changing. And you go from being a disciple to being a disciple maker. You got to be careful. Be careful. You got to be careful because what you receive, you might actually joyfully want to give. And what you experience in community, you got to be careful because you might actually want other people to join you in being in community. You got to be careful because pretty soon your friends and your family and your coworkers are people that you're watching live in isolation and you know that you have found your people and you are part of God's family and you want them so badly to experience what you're experiencing. You got to be careful, okay? Okay? You might get in trouble because you might be talking about Hey, where are you Wednesday night? You've got to be here. I'll pick you up. Hey, Sunday morning, we don't just do breakfast. We're in groups together. And I'll pick you up. Whatever it takes to get you here, we got to be together. And we got to know this Jesus. And we got to follow him. And we got to be part of the family. Let's do this. Would you join a group? Everybody say, join a group. Oh, it's awesome. How about number four? Begin consistently tithing. But you got to be careful because your heart follows where you give. And pretty soon, the things that you used to value, you're like, eh. The things that you used to spend so much time and money on, you're like, eh. And the more that you tithe, can we clarify? If you made $1,000 this week, then $100 goes to God. And if you made $4,000, $400 goes to God. And it, this week, if somebody gives you, hey, I owe you 200 bucks, you're like, awesome, 20 bucks goes in the plate. And if you get your tax return and you get $4,862, you do the math and move the decimals, God made it easy. And you say, God, this is yours. It's all yours, but I'm going to trust you with 
10 because I'm saying with my heart, I trust you with 110%. I trust you with it all. But you got to be careful because then God might start changing your heart for things that matter more than things that used to matter to you. And you got to be careful because you might actually start selling stuff and getting rid of stuff and start giving stuff away because you don't care about stuff anymore because you care about God's house and God's kingdom and you care about God's people and you care about our community and you want to give and you want to give and you want to give. And just in the past weeks, we've had an opportunity, multiple opportunities as a church to be able to see needs and meet needs. And guess what? You know what's so awesome about not being religious? That I don't have to stand up and go, all right, church, let's all be proud of ourselves because we gave this much above and beyond. We met all these needs. There's nothing to brag about. We're just doing our job. We're just doing our job. We're just doing the bare basics. Just bare bones. Need, we meet it. There's a need, we meet it. Does one person meet that? Do a couple people meet that? No, the whole church says, where's the need? We're going to meet it. As a family, we've been praying. We're saving up. We want to give. Above 10%, above and beyond, not just a tithe, but an offering. We want to give an offering above what we're already consistently giving. Begin consistently tithing. How about this? Lastly, pray every day. Somebody say pray every day. There we go. But you got to be careful because then you might experience miracles. You might experience supernatural. You might experience something that's unexplainable. If you start praying every single day, here's the most dangerous part of all. Everybody ready? 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 God may be more interested in not answering your request, but changing you as you pray. And you've got to be careful. Because what if prayer is more about intimacy and relationship and your life being changed than it is about your requests getting fulfilled? Your desire list, your Christmas list. Hey, Santa, Heavenly Father, what if it's more about God? The more I'm praying for that thing, the more I realize I don't even need that. The more that I'm asking you to take this out of my life, the more I'm realizing this does need to be in my life because you're using it. God, if you're not taking it away, you're doing something better. You're changing me. I don't know where you're at in your prayer life, but you've got to be careful because God moves and God answers. And here are these big five. I pray that you take these to heart and you would just ask, where am I at? Where are we at as households? God's church is a family of families. And if we're not united as families around these things, I just want us to get really honest. The reason our marriage is where it's at is because we are not both here. The reason I'm having problems with my kids is because me and my kids are not here. And I'm not talking a list of 500. Let's just start with five. We're not doing this together. We're not united in these basic disciplines, these basic baby steps as a family Therefore, we're not going to be a healthy couple or a healthy family. Therefore, our church is not going to get healthier. We're actually going to do damage instead of offering something. We are just going to perpetually take because we can't even prioritize basic areas of our spiritual life together in our homes. And what if today you could just look each other in the eyes? If you're married, if you're thinking about getting married, make sure it's a Christian. And you would be able to say, there's no way we can do this together unless we're on the same page with these things. How powerful would it be? Because we are not spiritual consumers. Somebody say, we're not consumers. 
We're spiritual contributors. It's what we do. We give, we give, we offer. The church is a safe place to bring your fears and your doubts because we have contribution that if you have come in, we are ready to pour in. We are ready to offer. Come with your doubts and fears, your brokenness, your addictions, and your sin because here's the reality. Maybe in the past, the church hasn't been a safe place for you, but I would say today, we are the church and the church is the safest of places to start believing before belonging. Because there's no way you can belong to God's family if you haven't first believed. Have you taken that first step? There's a reason that people come and go out of churches and say, I just don't belong here. I just don't fit in here. And maybe the answer is because you're a goat among sheep. You're a weed among wheat. There's a reason you don't belong because you're not a believer. Believing is first. And do you know that the church is the best place? to bring all of your mess and all of your doubts and say, Jesus, I believe today. I believe. I have not believed before. I've been around church. I've heard about Jesus, but I have not trusted him. He's not my king. I don't obey him. I don't follow him. I don't listen to his voice. I don't hear his words. I do my thing. And what if today could be the safest of opportunities to say today, I'm going to choose to believe. I'm going to choose to believe. Jesus, I trust you. I've been playing the game I've been playing church. I've been religious, but I don't have a relationship. And today, I believe. How awesome would that be? And as the worship team comes, the worship team comes, we've got to be honest that some of us can't say we are the church. Some of us can't say I'm part of the family. And we want to see that change. If I say I have nothing in common with these people, i got to ask, maybe it's where I'm at, not where they're at. And if it's me, I need to take the first step. I need to press in. I need to choose today.